Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 116, Holidays with a Laugh Track. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Paneris. Right around today is usually when I would do my annual Festivus episode, which is dedicated to having a friend and I complain about what's bothered us in popular culture and then fight our way through a terrible 90s comic. But in thinking of the tradition of Festivus, I decided that I wanted to not celebrate it this year, at least for as far as in Festivus episode is concerned. Now, one reason for this is that I am actually out of crappy 90s comics to cover because I offloaded a lot or most of them while uncollecting. If I get to go to the Baltimore Comic Con in 2021, I'll definitely grab one or two out of a cheap bin and set them aside for a future Festivus episode. Because I plan on getting back to that tradition. It's not dead, per se. Another reason I don't want to do a Festivus episode, though, is 2020. It's a tired line by now and an even more tired joke, but 2020 has been a very tough year for a lot of us. So why add to that particular vibe? Plus, I have to admit that what I would have complained about would have been, well, the same things I complained about in prior years or would have actually added nothing constructive to the conversation. That is something I've been thinking a lot about in recent months, especially as the events that have become the landmark 2020 events have unfolded. When we complain about something in popular culture, especially within our fandoms, Are we having conversations that actually go somewhere? I recently listened to a few episodes of a show where the host and his guests were discussing and criticizing something I've been a fan of for decades, and it was such a thoughtful, nuanced conversation that I was actually pleasantly surprised to the point where it made me want to actually engage in the discussion. And I shouldn't have been pleasantly surprised that fans can have thoughtful, nuanced conversations. But in recent years, I've heard so many diatribes about the way something was going, or the direction something was headed, wherein the host undermined whatever valid points they might have had with a tone of entitlement or a significant lack of self-awareness. And it's not like I've never been guilty of being a complete idiot with a lack of self-awareness. Come on. I don't think myself high and mighty. But, well, I was already exhausted, and this, it just tires me out even more. So I thought of maybe a different direction this year, and in the coming year, 
maybe I'll take some time to rediscover some of those things that I've loved for years, but lost in all of this noise. With that in mind, and my want to be a little more positive this year and celebrate Christmas, and in the tradition of this podcast and the season, I'm going to share with you some Christmas-related popular culture. Now, I've done an episode on toys, specifically G.I. Joe, and the Fire and Water guys recently did their own episode on some of their favorite Christmas memories and toys, so I won't be talking about that. I thought about doing a list of movies, but when I made a list, I found that I had already covered a couple of the films I wanted to talk about or wanted to do an entire episode on one or more of them. And not only had I done a music episode several years ago, Ryan and Neil Daly have done three in the past three years. So with everything that I could think of having been done, what could I do? Well, television. I began 2020 with an episode about sitcoms, and I'm going to close 2020 with an episode about sitcoms. I'll be taking a look at Christmas-themed sitcom episodes. They might not be the ones that make the best of lists, or even be ones that everyone remembers. They just happen to be ones that I remember and enjoy, and I thought that going through them would be really fun. So stay tuned, and after this trailer, I'll be back with some televised Christmas cheer. everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. <laughs> now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. <laughs> that kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheers Cast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network.
And I'm back. So as you know, sitcoms were a huge part of my formative years. Yes, I grew up on cartoons like any kid of the 1980s, but once those cartoons were over, the channels that showed them would switch over to sitcom reruns. My late afternoons and early evenings were filled with episodes of The Brady Bunch, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Charles in Charge, Different Strokes, The Facts of Life, Too Close for Comfort, Family Ties, Growing Pains, and a few of the shows that I'm going to talk about here. But while most of them are from the 80s and 90s, there's one episode from 2000 and one that's fairly recent. And of course, each of them obviously has something to do with Christmas or the holidays. And even though some of them use common holiday themes, they don't all follow any sort of similar formula. As far as order, I decided I didn't want to rank anything, so much like the sitcom episode I started the year off back in January, I'm just going to go chronologically in order of their release. Coming up first is Season 6, Episode 12 of Cheers, Christmas Cheers. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are This aired on December 17, 1987, and is the first Christmas-centric episode of the show featuring Kirstie Alley as Rebecca, who would replace Shelley Long's Diane that season. I'm not going to go too far into the history of the show, except to say that Alley would play Rebecca on the show until it ended in 1993. And if you want a great episode-by-episode look at Cheers, you should check out Ryan Daly's Cheers cast over on the Fire & Water Network. I think that as of my recording this, he's in season three or four, so he's not to the Rebecca era yet. But I'll be curious as to what he thinks of this episode when he gets there. I first saw this on television in a rerun, which is where I saw most episodes of Cheers, except for maybe the last couple of years' worth. Growing up, Channel 11, WPIX in New York, used to run the show at 7 p.m. each weeknight, and sometimes at 11 p.m. after the 10 o'clock news. That 7 o'clock airing was one that I rarely missed, especially when I was in junior high, and I've been watching a lot of sitcom reruns. I'd known about the two eras of the show with Diane and Rebecca, as I'd seen commercials for Cheers on television, and I was a regular reader of TV Guide, which covered the whole thing. You laugh, but TV Guide's going to get its own episode one day, promise. Anyway, there's not actually much of a plot to the episode, except that it's Christmas Eve, And everyone's at the bar because Rebecca's scheduled all of them, including herself as a show of mercy, I guess, on the part of a manager. And she's also paying them time and a half. Fraser's there because he's bitter, cynical, and these people seem to be his only friends outside of Lilith, who shows up at one point looking pretty hot because, well, it's 
B.B. Newworth. Cliff bounces in and out of the bar, trying to win a canned food drive at the post office so he can go to the Disney World and Norm. Well, it's Norm. Now, we do get a story wherein Sam, bitter at having had to work Christmas Eve, never bought Rebecca a Christmas gift, and when he finds out she bought one for him, has to scramble to get one. He runs across a flight attendant named Tracy who tells him that he can give Rebecca the earmuffs she bought for her mother, although he accidentally gives her a pair of diamond earrings that are in a similarly wrapped package. In the end, Sam writes Tracy a check for the earrings. Like I said, it's an episode that's light on actual plot, but what makes it fun is that it's a series of pretty good gags that helps undercut the schmaltz of a Christmas-themed episode. More importantly, it does so without trying to seem smarter than the material or its audience. There was a trend in comedy in the last two decades or so to write, quote, smarter in a cynical sense, as if we're somehow above all the nicety and heart that is in your traditional family sitcom. Granted, Modern Family won a shit ton of Emmys, but even that got sneered at by the smart kids in the room. What Cheers does here is poke fun at the whole Christmas magic aspects of a holiday sitcom episode without turning to its audience and saying, look how smart you are for watching this, as well as actually being funny. The Sam storyline is a bit of you-see-this-coming groaner, but I have to say that I like how he actually ends up writing her a check for the earrings, like instead of this being her telling him, oh, it's a time of giving or something. Plus, Tracy, the flight attendant, winds up falling for Woody in a way that I found genuinely funny. You see, Woody has decided that he's a big boy now and he can stay in Boston for the holidays instead of going back to Indiana. But the minute he gets on the phone with his mom, he gets homesick and he starts crying. As Sam is writing his check, Tracy mentions her mom's Christmas dinner, and then, well... All right, uh, well, thank you very much. You're sure, uh, sure not upset about this? No, I'm just going to go over to my mom's house. She'd probably still love getting everything ready for tomorrow. Yeah. You know, baking the bread and icing the cookies and stuffing the turkey. Stuffing? <laughs> oh, yeah, my mom makes it from scratch. Gee, so does mom. Yeah, but did your mom make it bone dry? You could gag on it. <laughs> hey, don't tell me. Do you have a manger scene on your front lawn? The biggest on our block. Oh. The wise men are my favorite. Oh, I love Balthazar. Oh, Balthazar's good, but Melchior, he's the best. <laughs> okay, well. Listen, I'd introduce you, dude, but something tells me you've known each other for years. <laughs> Woody actually gives Cliff some Christmas cheer, too, because Cliff comes in at one point having lost the canned food drive contest by one can, so he doesn't win the uh, Disney World trip. And then Woody gives him two cans that he had been holding on to and he'd forgotten to put in the bin, and Cliff's like, I'm going to Disney World, and he runs out to the post office. I'll get back to that in a minute. Because with Norm, while I said that like there's no contrived reason for Norm to be at the bar because Norm is at the bar there is a bit with him having to play a mall santa and some random guy who really looks like santa claus showing up amongst him and his fellow santa drinking buddies after that santa leaves they all say they don't remember him being there and even fraser who's been nothing but pissy the entire episode begins to have his heart grow three sizes and then this other random Santa comes back into the bar and says that his wife's going to kill him because he left the lights on in the station wagon and needs a jump. 
that undercutting of Christmas magic goes all the way to the end of the episode, too, where the gang gathers around the bar television to watch the ending of It's a Wonderful Life, and... Hey, look! It's a Wonderful Life is on again! It's the very best part! Turn it up, Sam. finally say this to you without having my head bitten off. Merry Christmas, Fraser. It is, isn't it? You have everything that matters. We're together. Our loved ones are safe and happy. This just into our newsroom. Boston Airport has been temporarily closed due to the presence of a berserk man on runway six, chasing an Orlando-bound plane and throwing what appears to be cans of Chinese food. <laughs> Stay tuned for further details. Oh, Cliffy, Cliff, Cliff. God bless us, everyone. And after this, there's a smash cut to black and the end of the night feeling of the end credits, which I think are my favorite end credits in sitcom history. I'm glad I started with this episode because it's a great example of having fun with the usual tropes and cliches of Christmas stories without being too smart for its own good or getting too cynical. Plus, it's incredibly well acted and an example of why Cheers is easily the best sitcom of the 80s and definitely one of the best of all time. Turning gears now to a show that was cynical, but deliberately so, I'm going to talk about Married with Children. You can't disparage Ask the local gentry And they will say it's elementary Try, try, try to separate them It's an illusion Try, try, try And you will only come To this conclusion Love and marriage So there are two episodes that I thought of when Married with Children came to mind. One was the two-parter It's a Bundyful Life, which aired in 1990 and was the satire of It's a Wonderful Life. In this one, after disappointing the family for Christmas yet again, Al Bundy winds up electrocuting himself on the house's Christmas lights. While completely out, he is visited by his guardian angel, who's played by Sam Kinison. Kinnison shows Al what life would have been like if he had never been born, but as opposed to everyone being seemingly miserable without the presence of, like, you know, Jimmy Stewart's character, like in the movie, the family is actually well-off and happy. Kelly and Bud are perfect overachiever children, Peggy is a domestic goddess, and she's married to Ted McGinley. And by the way, this is a couple of seasons before he permanently joins the cast as Jefferson Darcy. 
So Al decides to live because his presence makes everyone miserable, and he can't bear to see them happy without him. It's actually not that bad of a two-parter, and Kinnison is a solid guest star, even if he is just basically being Sam Kinnison. But that's also kind of the problem with it. It's so much of its time that it really doesn't hold up well, especially considering that a number of the jokes in the show that were offensive in 1990 are really offensive now. Instead, I went with Season 2, Episode 13, You Better Watch Out, which aired on December 20th, 1987. It's actually one of the more famous episodes of the show, as it's the one where Santa crash lands in the Bundy's backyard and Al has to pretend to be Santa to keep the neighborhood children from getting upset. This happens in the middle of the episode, and the build-up to it is that a brand new mall has opened up and it's taken so much business away from Al's mall that he didn't get his Christmas bonus this year. And that means no Christmas presents. So everyone in the family is just upset with and disappointed in him more than usual. Steve and Marcy come over to wish them a Merry Christmas, and while they're all there, they turn on the TV to watch the live footage of Santa parachuting into the Lakeside Mall parking lot with a sack full of gift certificates. However, his chute doesn't open, he's blown completely off course, and then the camera crew can't find him, and we cut to them turning around and seeing him landing headfirst in the Bundy's backyard. While the police, whose main detective, by the way, is played by Mike Haggerty, who would go on to, to play uh, Mr. Traeger, the building superintendent on Friends, investigate and tag Santa's body, the Bundys enjoy a Christmas pizza, while Marcy just sits on the couch and shakes, saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, and just Steve keeps pouring glass after glass of wine. As the police are about to haul Santa's body out, the neighborhood kids show up wanting to know if Santa's okay, and the family soon realizes that Al has to play Santa and talk to the children. He does so even if it's, well, not exactly Christmas cheer. <laughs> but what did you bring us? Uh, not... <laughs> nothing yet. Uh, that's why I gotta get back to the North Pole with the dancer and prancer in the... Uh, Donald and Goofy. But we haven't told you what we want. Santa knows. Then what do I want? Mm. I don't know. What do you want? I want to sit on your lap. Uh, all right, but make it fast. Santa has hemorrhoids. <laughs> uh, what do you want? I want to know why he came to old man Bundy's house. Oh, well, I came to bring him special presents because he... Sells women's shoes and is cursed with a foul wife and has ungrateful kids, but still he goes on. But he's a butthead. <laughs> no, he's not. He's the nicest man on the block. Boy, you must be Santa. I told you I was. What do you want? I want a real life horse. Hmm. Your mom's the one who makes pies for everyone in the neighborhood but those nice bundies, isn't she? All right, Santa will leave you a horse tonight under your tree. But if it's not there in the morning, it's because your mommy chased it away and killed it. <laughs> so they eventually get Santa out of the house and a mall representative shows up with a bride. And I should point out that the mall representative is played by David Ruprecht, who was the host of Supermarket Sweep. Anyway, realizing that Al actually saved Christmas without having to be bribed, he tears up the check and uh, goes on his merry way. 
so the kids and Peggy are basically like, you know, still disappointed in him and thank him in that Bundy way. Well, Al, look at it this way. You did a nice thing, cost us a nice bribe and a shot at a happy Christmas. Thank you, Father, kids. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, I know I let everybody down. It's okay, Dad. It's not like this never happened before. Yeah. I mean, the Santa Corpse was a new twist, but heck, it's something to tell a psychiatrist later on in life. <laughs> yes, it's a Bundy Christmas. And unfortunately, we're Bundys. <laughs> and then something else falls in the backyard, and they realize that it's the sack of mall gift certificates that Santa had been carrying. They scoop up the loot and head to the Lakeside Mall for some Christmas shopping while the very end of Mel Torme's The Christmas Song plays. There are two things that I noticed about this episode as I was watching it. First was how the entire thing is shot on two sets, the living room and the front porch. Classic sitcoms excel at being able to stage an entire story with very little scenery changing. And this one is so well staged that it could actually be staged as a play because there's no scene that must happen on television. For a show that was as low-brow as Married with Children, that's pretty impressive. The second thing is that it still holds up. I think that's because it doesn't try to rely on then-recent pop culture references and also does not go for outwardly offensive jokes that might have passed in 1987 but don't work in 2020, which is one of the problems that I mentioned about It's a Bundyful Life from 1990. Married with Children was bawdy, even vulgar at times. So it never came off as trying to wink at the camera and be smart, or smarter than anything that came before it. And yes, when it was at its best, it satirized the family sitcoms that populated the airwaves in the 80s by giving us a family that really couldn't stand one another. Yes, the episode does have a happy ending, but it's not because the Bundys have had a revelation that the true meaning of Christmas comes through the love of one's family. No, it's because they got a sack full of gift certificates and they can go spend at the mall. Not only that, they can fleece the mall that competes with Al's for thousands of dollars because they're spending the mall's money. It's actually pretty brilliant when you think of it. Before I go into the next episode, I have two things about the show that really have nothing to do with the episode, but since I don't see myself doing an entire podcast episode about Married with Children anytime soon, I thought I'd point them out. Hands down, Married with Children has one of the best opening credit sequences in television history. A lot of shows of this era tended toward montages from prior episodes, or if they did not, were nothing to write home about, but at least they had a decent theme song. After some scenery shots of Chicago, including a clip from National Lampoon's Vacation, where you can see the Griswold's Roadster merging on the highway, we get Al sitting on the couch with the typical Al Bundy pained look on his face, doling out money to everyone else while Frank Sinatra sings Love and Marriage. It is an absolutely perfect encapsulation of the show. All right, on to my next episode, which is, well, you didn't think I was going to get through a holiday sitcom episode without talking about that episode of Saved by the Bell, did you? When I wake up in the morning and the long gets out of water, I don't think I'll ever make it on time. By the time I grab my books and I give myself a look, I'm at the corner just in time to see the bus fly by. It's alright, cause I'm safe out the bell. If the teacher pops a test, I know I'm in a mess And my dog ate all my homework last night Riding low on my chair, she won't know that I'm there If I can hand it in tomorrow, it'll be alright It's alright 
Yes, it's Home for Christmas, which aired on December 7th and December 14th, 1991. And depending on where you look, there are either Season 3, Episodes 24 and 25, or Season 4, Episodes 24 and 25. And I think that might have to do with whether or not the website or streaming service you are looking at includes the Good Morning Miss Bliss episodes in the show's run. So the premise of this episode is the three out of the six main cast members are working at the mall for Christmas break. Jessie is working a Santa photo booth where kids are just absolutely awful to her in typical kid sitcom fashion. Slater is working at the gift wrap booth and he can't wrap to save his life, which leads to various comedic gags, which is actually one of the few funny things in the entire episode. And Kelly is working at a menswear store. At some point, Lisa, Zach, and Screech are at the mall because it's the only set they have available except for Zach's living room episode. And it's the only time we don't see the two main sets. And it's one of the only times we don't see the two main sets of the show for the for an entire episode. Um, we, there's no Bayside High and there's no uh, The Max. Anyway, um, at one point, Zach comes across two people. One, uh, this pretty blonde girl named Laura, who he immediately hits on, and then a homeless guy in the, who's shaving in the men's room of the mall. And one of the things about the homeless guy is he's just kind of this guy with a beard who is wearing, like, you know, a sweater and khakis and a shirt and doesn't look like, you know, a a, a Halloween hobo costume or something like that yet, you know? And then Laura is working at the men's shop that Kelly is working at. Zach and his efforts to win Laura, because I think Kelly and Zach had broken up at this point um, in this season, takes her out for lunch and ice cream, etc., etc. And then when the homeless guy passes out in the mall food court, he's taken to the hospital. All the kids end up at the hospital later because they're working a, a Christmas party that Lisa is volunteering for because she's a candy striper. And with them all dressed up in Christmas costumes, they go to see if that homeless guy that they um, called 911 for is okay. And, well, they walk into a hospital room, and Laura is there with her father, and she is homeless. And that's part one of the episode. Uh, part two of the episode features them basically trying to help this girl and her fa- and her father. In one case, she just wants to have uh, an hour off to participate in this Christmas play that Zach's mother has helped produce in the, in the mall food court. And it's basically a Christmas carol. And in order to get Moody, Mr. Moody, the men's store owner, to allow Laura to participate, they basically turned it into one giant commercial for the uh, the menswear store. And Merry Christmas, me girls. Come, everyone, sit round the table. The goose is ready. And before we eat, let's raise a glass of eggnog to the man who pays me wages, the man who makes his Christmas feast possible, Mr. Scrooge. Here's our goose! <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> to Mr. Scrooge, the old cheapskate. To Mr. Scrooge, I hope he chokes on his chestnuts. <laughs> Mommy, Daddy, sisters, dear, this goose was cooked with love, and we're all here together to share it on Christmas Day. So I say, there never was such a goose. It's the best goose ever cooked. <coughs> Sorry, I forgot you're the sickly Tiny Tim. It's a shame about Tiny Tim. Yes, it's tragic. So young, so brave, and so poorly dressed. He should try the boys' department at Moody's store for men. But Tim is so tiny. Humbug! 
Moody's store for men has all sizes, from Tiny Tim to Gigantic George. And at bargain prices, even the Crouches could afford it. Laura actually almost gets fired because Kelly takes this sport jacket that Laura wanted to get for her dad and sets it aside for layaway. And um, Mr. Moody thinks she stole it. It turns out, of course, she didn't. And at the end of the episode, everybody, plus Frank, who's the name of Laura's father, and Laura are at Zach's house. They're eating Christmas dinner. And Mr. Moody comes back over with the sport jacket and says, you know, Merry Christmas, you can have your job back, you know, bah humbug and all that and leaves. And Zach's mom offers to let them stay for a little while at the house. Uh, Of course, we never see them again. Um, It's a very special episode in the sense that it's dealing with an issue. Unfortunately, if we're thinking about memorable, very special episodes of the show, it's actually not one of the better ones. You know, it's hard to hit the level of like craziness that that is the the Jesse's song, the 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 anti-drug episode from that I talked about earlier this year. But there are several other ones that like aren't necessarily good, but are so ridiculous in their premise that they stand out a little bit more. This one, I tend to remember because it's a two-parter and it's like a totally different setting and, and because of the whole thing when, you know, with, with the, the homeless girl and all that. The message that's being sent is twofold. One is that, well, obviously, like, you know, you should help people who are less fortunate than you um, and that a lot of people, you know, struggle through the holidays. And I think the other one, which actually, for what it's worth, this does well, is is send a message that, you know, people who are who are homeless or struggling don't look like something out of a stereotypical image. So, so to credit to the uh, to the producers who are setting setting up the characters of Frank and Laura, they just make them look like a couple of people who are just very ordinary looking, and they live in their car. So it's not like they're they're huddled under an, a highway overpass or something like that. And the circumstances surrounding Frank's homelessness are also again well presented. You know, he just he and Laura just talk about the fact that, um, you know, in the middle of, of what was a recession at the time, he lost his job, couldn't find anything. And they kind of grapes of rafted out to California to see if they could find work out here because there was, you know, some promise or they had a lead on something or whatever, whatever promise they had fell through and, and they're now, um, they're homeless. So, so it, it, it's presented in a way that like, is like, look at these very normal. And I realize normal is a relative term, but look at these very normal looking person, people who are, who are struggling. And I think for kids, that's a pretty good, pretty good message to send. Most of the episode is total like total crap i mean most of the episodes are this is like of it's of of a ridiculous level um because i mean credit to the actors they did the best they could with the script the thing about zach morris and and i can't really uh, do better than the funnier die zach morris's trash compilation but whenever they had zach be like the main character in an episode that centered around an issue he always came off like this sort of smug, self-righteous asshole. And it's kind of here, 
in that you know you, the guy's trying to do the right thing, of course, and and we should credit him for that. But there's always this sort of like, you know, in the in the same way that you know he he's always good at scheming, and the scheming asshole was charming, I guess, or presented as charming. This one is just, it's just, anytime he was, he was self-righteous and the sort of like taking on an issue like pollution or something, it was always kind of like self-congratulatory. And it kind of comes off in, in this episode as well. Plus there's this whole like just cheesy ass play they put on, which is not even funny and just a bunch of like really weird screech gags to be honest with you and then um the whole typical you know very special we never see these people it's never mentioned again type of thing with with the ending one particular scene though i find actually good is when earlier in the episode frank and Laura come over to Zach's house. They like, you know, they they give him a cup of coffee and and some some lunch or dinner or whatever. And Mrs. Morris says something to the extent of, you know, her husband isn't doesn't wouldn't mind, and he's out of town. That's the contrivance there. That he he's always is interested in meeting different people. And Zach does his best to try to cover for it. And it's because it's totally this weird faux pas that she probably didn't realize that she was doing. So credit to the writers for doing that because it's I guess today that's the type of thing we would call a microaggression. But here it it's just presented as just this this weird slip that she didn't realize she was making until Zach started to correct her and it was a slightly awkward situation. So again, there are bits and pieces of writing in this that are that are good, but I feel like I was covering this out of obligation because I can't go a, a let a sitcom episode go by without mentioning Saved by the Bell, especially when we're talking about very special episodes. By the way, I haven't mentioned this yet, but Cheers, Married with Children and Saved by the Bell are all on Hulu at the moment as of this recording, as is this next show, and that is... Seinfeld. And I realized we're staying on NBC. I, you know, um, I realized I pretty much left ABC and CBS completely off this list. I did watch some ABC sitcoms back in the day, but not a ton of CBS stuff except for Murphy Brown. Of course, NBC in the 80s and 90s was the front runner in sitcoms to the point where Thursday night was must-see TV. It's something I covered way back in 2014 when I looked at Thanksgiving-themed episodes from 1994. But here I'm going with an episode from 1992. It's season four, episode 13 of Seinfeld, The Pick. Four running storylines in this episode. One that is, is George is mourning the loss of his relationship with Susan because they'd just broken up a few episodes earlier. Even though the entire time he was in the relationship, he couldn't stand being in the relationship. 
Jerry's dating a high fashion model named Tia, who is played by Jennifer Campbell, an actress who at the time I recognized her in an episode of Baywatch. And at one point, she catches him scratching his nose, but misinterprets that as a nose pick and breaks up with him over it. Kramer meets Tia at one point when he barges into Jerry's apartment, as Kramer does, and realizes that Calvin Klein's new perfume, Ocean, ripped off his idea for a perfume called The Beach. And the thing that is most Christmas and the best part of the episode is that Elaine sends out a Christmas card with a photograph on it, and in the photograph, her nipple is showing. You know, whereas other shows, especially one that I'll talk about a little later, often ran multiple storylines or plots throughout their episodes, but often not well, Seinfeld was built for this sort of structure. Yes, there was often one central premise to an episode, but since the show is about nothing, they could simply give us a look into the lives of these people for a few days. This particular episode also happens to be during what I think is one of Seinfeld's best seasons. This is the season that largely centers around Jerry and George developing a sitcom for NBC. Once you get past season five of the show, it gets more and more unwatchable, at least in my opinion. Here, George is at a pretty solid medium between overly whiny like he was in the first couple of years and yelling all the time like he did in the last few. Plus, the four principal actors have already fully developed their chemistry with one another, especially Jason Alexander and Jerry Seinfeld. And that's really necessary because Seinfeld looks like he's going to break and start laughing through a number of really funny scenes in this episode. He also kind of oversells the no pick, no pick line toward the end of the episode, which resolves three or four of the plots. Jerry and Kramer at that point, by the way, head to Calvin Klein so that Jerry can talk to Tia and explain what he says wasn't a pick. But that fails and he launches into some weird elephant man monologue. Kramer winds up becoming an underwear model. And George's resolution, well, he heads up to Susan's apartment, realizes he's made a huge mistake, and then... Now how do I get out of there? And then it hits me like a bolt of lightning. The pick. <laughs> the pick? The pick? She comes out of the bathroom, I'm in up to my wrist. <laughs> you should have seen the look on her face. I think I've seen that look. <laughs> And while that's funny, the most Costanza moment actually comes midway through the episode. He goes to see a therapist of a friend of Elaine's, and when they sit down to meet, he can't get his jacket unzipped. He tries to ignore it, and he can't, so he starts flipping out. After some other stuff happens, we cut back to the two of them trying to get the jacket unzipped, and the therapist gets so frustrated, she just like starts, she just yells, she stands back, she's like, you're going to have to leave. It's just one of those perfect sequences that highlights how annoying George Costanza really can be. The story about Elaine's Christmas card actually is never resolved. I don't think it ever mentioned beyond this episode. It begins innocently with her spotting Tia's Christmas card at Jerry's apartment and saying she thinks that doing a photo card is something she might want to do. Kramer takes her picture and somehow with the shirt she ends up wearing, she exposes her nipple in the photo. This causes so much chaos because she sent out dozens of the cards, except to George. You cannot believe what I am going through. That card is plastered all over the office. Everybody's calling me Nip. <laughs> yeah, that's my new nickname at the office, Nip. These guys keep asking me out for drinks. Not only that, Fred, you know the guy I told you about? He hasn't called me in three days. Oh, hey. Hey. 
How come I didn't get a Christmas card? Everybody else got one. Jerry got one. Kramer got one. I thought we were good friends. I don't get a Christmas card. I don't get it. You want a Christmas card? You want a Christmas card? All right, here. Here's your Christmas card. What you can't see in that audio clip is that what Elaine does is take George's head and shoves it into her breasts. Apparently, this was an improvised scene and nearly 30 years later had me laughing. It's not exactly a well-kept secret that Julia Louis-Dreyfus is the best part of the show, and she is the best part of this episode. She not only has brilliant timing, but also plays off the other cast members really well, especially in one of the funniest moments of the episode. Jerry and Kramer are trying to make her feel better about the Christmas card by saying that nobody is going to notice it, so they go get Newman. Well, maybe no one noticed it. You didn't notice it. Let me go get Newman. We'll see if he sees it. No, I don't want him looking. Oh, what's the difference? Everybody else you know has it. <laughs> oh, my God, I sent one to the super my building, my mailman, my 10-year-old little nephew, Sister Mary Catherine, Father Chelios. Oh, my God, Fred. I sent one to Fred. <laughs> Okay, what hey, is it? Here. Take a look at this card. Tell me if you notice anything unusual about it. Yeah, your nipple's showing. Oh. Okay, thanks. Anything else? No. All right, see you later. I just laughed through this whole thing. And as far as that episode is concerned, it's a great example of Christmas just being folded into the everyday world of the show instead of being something that all plot and character have to stop for. Yes, we do that in our lives and try to have special Christmas moments, but that's not what Seinfeld was about, and here's where it does it best. Next up, we're heading over to the Fox Network for Season 7, Episode 11 of The Simpsons. Marge, be not proud. This one originally aired on December 17th, 1995, and like the Cheers and Married with Children episodes, is probably the one that I caught in a rerun. At the time, while I had watched the show on, on and off since it started airing in 1989, I wasn't a fan on the level that it, I would become, especially in the last three years of college and then for several years beyond that, when The Simpsons would be daily appointment television in the house. My stories, in a way. 
The show has a strong history with Christmas, especially since our favorite family's first full-length episode was a Christmas special called Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire that had aired exactly six years prior to this one on December 17, 1989. That's a great episode and a pretty solid pilot effort, especially considering how rough everything seems compared to what we have here, which is an episode smack in the middle of the show's golden age. Another great episode, by the way, is Grift of the Magi from season 11, and I actually would have chosen that one, except that this has always been one of my favorites, and is also an example of how this show did family sitcom premises really, really well. Our story is that after seeing a commercial for the next hot video game called Boomstorm, Bart tells Marge that he must have it for Christmas. Marge tells him that it's unlikely, especially since those games cost upwards of $70. Bart then tries to get a copy by renting it at the comic book store, only to have to find out that they are out, but they have plenty of Lee Carvalho's putting challenge cartridges. Bart then heads to the try and save, which is Springfield's version of Kmart, and ends up attempting to steal the game. He almost gets all the way out to the parking lot, but then is caught by Dom Brodka, the chief security officer who's played by Lawrence Tierney, but he's able to avoid having his parents find out because Brodka leaves a message on the answering machine and Bart intercepts it before the family gets home. So he's in the clear, except the next day the family goes to the try and save portrait studio and Dom Brodka catches Bart there and shows the family and the entire story of the tape on one of those like television walls that they tend to have. Homer yells at Mar Bart, but Marge is completely silent and begins acting differently, which causes Bart to think that she doesn't love him anymore. At the end of the episode, Bart walks into the house with something under his arm. Marge catches him and demands to know what it is, thinking that he is shoplifted again. It's revealed to be a framed portrait of Bart with a receipt attached. I mentioned family sitcom premises earlier, and this is certainly one of those classic sitcom storylines. In fact, I'm sure that at some point I saw an episode of Different Strokes or Growing Pains or something where one of the characters shoplifts and eventually learns a lesson. There's a lesson learned in this one, of course, but the writers are able to do it without going full over into some sort of Mr. Drummond speech moment. Plus, they get to put a bunch of the usual Simpsons absurdity into the episode without overwhelming the actual plot of the story, which is the reason why this season in this era is one of the best. The Bone Storm commercial is a great send-up of ultra-violent video games of the era, as well as the way kids would covet them. When he's in the store, Bart sees a spoiled brat with a rich suburban mom telling his mother that she's an idiot and she'd better buy two copies of the game because he's not sharing with his sister. And when Bart discovers that Millhouse has it, we get a great allusion to the classic blown-away photograph that was used in Maxell cassette tape ads for years. Also, later on, Milhouse actually tells Bart he can borrow Bonestorm because he's bored with it, and he's having more fun with a cup and ball, which leads to them fighting over the cup and ball. There's also a couple of great Homer moments, one where he has filled the fridge with cartons of eggnog as determined to drink as much as possible before, you know, big eggnog takes it all away. And then there's also the scene where he tears into Bart after the shoplifting, saying, Dealing! How could you? Haven't you learned anything from that guy who gives those sermons at church? Captain, what's his name? We live in a society of laws. Why do you think I took in all those police academy movies? For fun? Well, I didn't hear anybody laughing. Did you? Except that that guy who made sound effects. 
Hog, hog. <laughs> Where was I? Oh yeah, stay out of my booze. But the episode belongs to Bart and Marge, and I think the real strength is the way that Marge reacts to Bart's shoplifting. At the beginning of the episode, we see her as the classic doting mom who is still treating her kids a bit like they're little. But when Bart gets in trouble, she just stops doing it to him. It could seem very cold or even cruel, but the way that things are written, animated, and voiced by Julie Kavner, Marge is deeply hurt and really doesn't know what to do with herself or how to approach Bart. You can tell that he's violated her trust in him, and she blames herself for babying him. So she just turns around and says, okay, well, you're not a little kid anymore. It's heartbreaking, and while on one hand I'm glad because Bart needed to learn his lesson, on the other hand I want that lesson to be that he not only did something wrong, but he needs to make things right. And he does so with the picture at the end, because he got caught in the middle of the Christmas portrait. So the family portrait that year is everybody smiling and Dom Brodka's hand yanking Bart out of the picture. So at the end, he gives her the picture of him just smiling. She attaches it to the uh, family portrait and it actually takes what was a leaning frame and corrects it. So it's, it's this cute, sweet little moment. It's an episode that uses Christmas as a backdrop to skillfully tell a classic sort of sitcom story, and that's why I love it. The penultimate episode in this holiday episode recap has more to do with Hanukkah than Christmas, and it's season 7, episode 10 of Friends, the one with the holiday armadillo, which aired on December 14th, 2000. I also think this might be one of the most well-known of these episodes since Friends was a series that was immensely popular. And I covered that on the show uh, with Stella about three years ago now. There's actually three stories crammed into the episode. Uh, one, which has nothing to do with the holidays, is about Phoebe's apartment being ready to be moved back into after a fire and her being upset that Rachel, who she's been living with, is having so much fun living with Joey. The second involves Chandler trying getting dinner reservations and show tickets for him and Monica to celebrate their first Christmas after getting engaged, and he can't pull off the shake the Mater D's hand and slip him a 20 move. The third, and the one that is from the title and is about the holidays, is about Ross and his son Ben, who at this point is played by Cole Sprouse, the actor who can currently be seen as Jughead on Riverdale. Ross and Monica are Jewish but Ross's ex-wife, Carol, isn't. So while Ben goes both, gets both Christmas and Hanukkah, he's way more excited about Christmas. Ross really wants to teach him about Hanukkah, and he fails at his first attempt, so he decides to give up and go get a Santa costume to dress up as Santa for Christmas, like Carol does. When he can't find one, he gets what is available, 
an armadillo costume, and shows up at Monica and Chandler's apartment to tell Ben all about Hanukkah as the holiday armadillo. Of course, Chandler nearly ruins things when he shows up in a Santa costume, but eventually says that he and Ben should listen to the holiday armadillo tell them about Hanukkah. Ross proceeds to tell the story and is interrupted for no reason except, as Michael Bailey says, it all comes back to Superman because, well, there's Joey in a Superman costume. But they listen to the story, and we get one of my favorite lines of the entire episode. And the miracle was that that little bit of oil that should have lasted just one day burned for... Eight whole days. That's right. And that's why we celebrate Hanukkah today. The end. Awesome. My favorite part was when Superman flew all the Jews out of Egypt. (laughs) The armadillo was actually not so thrilled about that part. So the episode ends with Ben and Ross lighting the menorah. And while it's a nice moment, it's actually one of the weaker entries here, mainly because of the whole Rachel Phoebe plot and the constant Chandler trying to slip some money gags. It was at this point that the show was riding high on being the biggest thing on television, and its stars were the biggest thing on television. So the writers were always more or less writing three or four stories at once at any given point in the season. And while later seasons of Friends do have their moments, they're not as well done as the seasons from the show's first half. Anyway, what works with this episode is the ridiculousness of David Schwimmer in an armadillo costume and him committing to the whole bit, especially since it's very in character of Ross. I've seen a number of articles, blog posts, and videos over the last few years that talk about how problematic Friends really is and how Ross is actually the worst. And while there's a case to be made, moments like this do remind us why the show was so endearing. Ross's conflict is what I imagine to be not unrealistic. He gets along with Carol and Susan to an extent, but in the end, Christmas and Santa are going to have more hold on Ben, and it's going to be frustrating because Hanukkah is just not important to him, even though it's tied to his identity. Granted, we've never really seen anyone on the show be overly religious, except for the occasional mention of Ross and Monica's being Jewish and Joey's enormous Italian-Roman Catholic family. But considering there are a lot of Christians who only go to church on Christmas and Easter, there are probably a lot of Jews who only go to temple for like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover. Anyway, David Schwimmer sells the idea that teaching Ben about being Jewish and about Hanukkah means a lot to Ross. And he does it without getting whiny, angry, or, well, Rossy. Because he does that a lot during this period. His frustration seems very natural. It's really, really well acted. And it has to be comedic at the end because this is a situation comedy. So the silliness of the holiday armadillo is pretty funny, especially when the whole attempt at teaching Ben about Hanukkah starts to spiral out of control with Santa and then Superman. And I will say, though, that one of the things that does knock the episode down a notch is the ending scene. Not the whole lighting the menorah, because that's actually a very nice scene. It's nicely set. It's nicely shot. It's, um, it could be very quiet. But as they begin, Rachel and Phoebe come in, and Rachel says that it looks like everyone is at the Easter Bunny's funeral. And then right before we go to credits, Phoebe has some clueless comment about all these odd characters gathered at the Easter Bunny's funeral. It just kind of ruins the moment that was headed toward nice and simple without being schmaltzy. 
And heck, I was even able to forgive the use of tradition from Fiddler on the Roof as the outro song, but do you really need to write in one last joke? Still, it is worth watching, even if it's only notable for about a third of its content. My final episode on this list is one that's actually very recent. It's from 2018, and it's season four, episode 13 of Shit's Creek. Merry Christmas, Johnny Rose. Now, if you've never watched Schitt's Creek, the premise of the show is that Johnny and Moira Rose, who are played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, and their children, David and Alexis, who are played by Dan Levy and Annie Murphy, were once incredibly rich people. So rich that, as a joke, they once bought a town called Schitt's Creek. Well, they've lost all their money and now they're living in Schitt's Creek. So it's kind of a contemporary version of Green Acres. While this episode comes a little more than halfway through the show's run, it's a self-contained episode because it relies on you knowing the show's premise and not any actual plot continuity. The episode opens with a lavish Rose family Christmas party featuring an appearance by Paul Schaefer, but then we see that it's a dream Johnny is having about the days back when the family was living very well. It's a moment we come back to over the course of the episode, with Johnny thinking nostalgically back to these great parties of the past. But for the last few years, they haven't been celebrating because they've been living poor in the Rosebud Motel and haven't celebrated Christmas. He decides that this is the year to celebrate and declares that they are going to throw a Christmas party right there in the motel room. Naturally, things fall apart quickly and Johnny can't deal with it. Is it straight? Oh, straight as an arrow. Ah, good. Oh, David, Stevie. That tree's not straight. Huh? No, 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 it's pretty straight. Let's see what we got here. Lights. Oh, I'm missing a lot of bulbs. But we'll make do. What else? What's this, a pumpkin? Perhaps a Christmas gourd. Oh, it's not a Christmas gourd, Moira. I know, John, but you requested I get on board. That was me getting on board. David, what's going on here? This, this stuff is garbage. Um, it's Stevie's grandmother's decorations? And by garbage, Stevie, you know, I, I, I mean... Oh, I, I no, no, no. It's... it's bad. What's this? Oh, those would be Mardi Gras beads. Nana Bud worked real hard for those. So we're getting warmer. This is all you could find, David? You own a store. Where, where are all the decorations that you sell in your store? Um, they're at the store being sold. I couldn't just bring everything home just because you wanted to have a party at the last minute. We're saving for stuff. Oh, well, that's very responsible. What are you saving for? An espresso machine. You're selling coffee now? Mm-hmm. It's, it's more for the staff room. I'm gonna just go get that wine. It's for the staff room? So you couldn't bring home decorations for your family on Christmas because you're saving money for a coffee maker for yourself? I believe he said espresso machine. You're not helping, Moira. <gasps> what is everybody yelling about? Well, we have a Christmas tree, but no decorations because your brother's a cheap ass. And right now we have the most unchristmassy looking room that'll soon be filled with party guests. Spe speaking of, how's the guest list coming, Alexis? I don't know, you tell me. Why would I tell you? You were in charge of the guest list. Well, it's hard to be in charge of the guest list if no one's given it to me yet. Why would anybody give it to you? You were in charge of making it. Making it? I thought you wanted me to handle it. Like, work the door, make sure nobody gets in that isn't on the list. 
It's Christmas Eve, Alexis. Ooh. Who's going out crashing other people's Christmas parties? Ooh. Knock, knock. Any room left at the inn? <laughs> I hope you guys all like gingerbread. Oh, you're too sweet. Oh, no, it was the least we can do. Just sorry that we couldn't stick around for the party tonight. What's that? You didn't tell him? Oh, my God. Okay, I hate this. I opened red. I hope that's okay with everyone. Alexis, I thought we agreed that you and Ted would be coming here tonight. I know, but Ted's friends are having a thing, and everyone low-key hates me. Well, hate is a strong word. Do you know what I think might put this jolly trolley back on track? The release of the tree. Are you kidding me, Moira? I don't see much point in doing that now. No, release it. Yes, and I'll put the jerry beads on the tree. We're not putting Mardi Gras beads on a Christmas tree, Alexis. John. Please, do the honors. <gasps> Yay! I, for one, find it charming in sort of a, a war-torn sort of way. If we rotate it? Oh. Allow me? I can do that. Oh, just, nope, nope, actually you don't want to do that. Looks like the other side's been charred or something. Um, what if we cut it up and turned it into garlands? Why don't we just cut it up for firewood? You know, this, this was a really stupid idea, a little Christmas party, something to temporarily take our minds off things, but clearly this was too much for all of you. And you're right. Why start making an effort now? John. I'm gonna take a walk. It's meatloaf night at the cafe, and if anything is screaming Christmas to me right now, it's meatloaf. I didn't want to say anything, but meatloaf night was yesterday. Dear God. I'd... We get another flashback to the party from when they were rich after this, and it's to the party's aftermath, where Johnny wanted to gather the family around their enormous Christmas tree and exchange presents. Both kids have already split, and Moira has taken her Christmas pill and only has eight minutes to get up to bed before she passes out. So it's the reality of things creeping in the same way that it crept in during the previous scene, and he's depressed because his family has always been thoughtless and selfish. In the end, though, they aren't. Moira retrieves him from the diner where he had headed off to, and when they get back to the motel, their friends have gathered for what is a lovely Christmas party. Looks like you're crying. Well, I'm not. It's just we're. 
We ran out of bed. It is a very traditional Christmas episode sitcom plot, and, well, it plays it straight. There's no metatextual commentary. There's no winking at the audience to tell us how stupid the idea is. There's no deconstructing or turning something on its head. It's just yet another half-hour plot where one character wants to revel in the joy of the Christmas season and everyone around him doesn't have time to or thinks he's nuts or is so wrapped in their own bullshit that they can't bother. And I have to say, it's great. Schitt's Creek won all the Emmys this past year for its final season, and one of the things it did well was use very sitcom premises while relying on the characters and the actors playing them to do witty, to be witty, sarcastic, and quirky. The show has a real heart to it, and it's on full display in this episode. And who better than Eugene Levy to play the doting, overenthusiastic father? He's played that type of character before, but Johnny Rose is a little more complicated than Jim's dad from American Pie. Well, partially because he's a main and not supporting character, but also because he's a rich asshole who lost everything and is, over the course of the show's six seasons, discovering what's important as well as getting it all back. Even the Charlie Brown ending, which could very well tip into schmaltz, works. Or maybe that's just me, because I'm a fan of the show and I'm invested in the characters. But as biting and sarcastic as the Rose family can be to one another, they don't hate one another. And honestly, I think we need that this year. We've watched some really awful, terrible things happen. And the response to them has sometimes been enough to lose your faith in humanity. Like I said toward the beginning of the episode, I'm not here to litigate that. But it certainly was on my mind as I watched all of these shows. My hope for everyone this holiday season, and yeah, who am I to say anything right, but I'm going to anyway. My hope for anyone this holiday season is that the time we have brings us pause and patience. We have a lot to think about. We have a lot to learn about what we've been through, what we're going through, and what we're going to be going through. My best wishes to you and your family for a happy, safe, and healthy holiday season, as well as a wonderful new year. And every mother's child is gonna spy to see if reindeer really know how to fly. And so Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Offering the simple phrase 
to kids from one to ninety-two. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to you.